This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. In the last episode, Brad Westerop from Thuggies.com explained how he has found more success with micro-influencers rather than celebrity influencers. In today's episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that launched a business following the lean startup methodology. In this episode, you'll learn what it's like to scrap an entire business to start a new one, what is the lean startup methodology and how to use it to rapidly launch a business or a new product line, and what are the key tests every e-commerce site should be running. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Schwartz from Modify Watches.com. That's M-O-D-I-F-Y-W-A-T-C-H-E-S.com. Modify Watches sells custom watches that are hand-assembled in San Francisco, California, and were started in 2010. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you on. So tell us a little bit more about your store and, uh, and these watches. Yeah. Uh, so we started Modify Watches in 2010. I got my MBA at Berkeley. Uh, and um, during school, started a company, didn't really go anywhere, learned a ton. And at the end, I actually started this business with a buddy of mine, Gary. And the idea was, you know, in the same way you could put anything you want on a T-shirt, we thought it'd be pretty fun to put anything you want on a watch. And if you, you met either of the two of us, you'd notice we weren't super fashionable. So it was, it was pretty strange, but we started a consumer brand that was not about kind of us saying, hey, this, this is the fall collection or the, the spring-summer collection. Mm-hmm. It was much more, what do you want? And so we kind of over the years worked our way to doing everything custom. And as of 2014, we did a Kickstarter campaign that uh, enabled us to actually launch custom products made in the city. So now people literally get whatever they want, whether it's a photo of their kid or you know, we've done some custom watches for Twitter or Facebook or Lyft or, I don't know, a bunch of big companies. Um, and yeah, that that's our story. Very cool. Yeah, definitely want to talk about the Kickstarter a little in, in a little bit. Uh, before we get there, so you, you mentioned that you tried starting a business in college, didn't work, uh, but then was it just your second business attempt that, that born uh, Modify Watches? Yeah, this this was the second one. I mean, the first one was an awesome experience. Um, but you know, we had four four founders, none of whom were technical. We were trying to build a big sustainability business, and we we basically bit off more than we could chew. Um, and then it was my second year in B school where we we took a class from Steve Blank and Eric Rees, who mm. you know lean startup, get out uh-huh. the build, dot dot dot. And um, you know, I think kind of getting to hear those guys talk to us and all the speakers, uh, we realized that we legitimately done everything wrong. And so uh, when I started Modify, it was much more about how can we move as fast as possible, um, even if it means we throw out a subpar product or a subpar website or subpar whatever, just to learn quickly. Um, and that, that was basically the first three or six months was um, you know, getting in front of as many people as possible, learning, iterating, um, and going from there. Yeah, definitely also want to talk about the, the lean startup model in a bit uh, before we get there. So the second business that you started, uh, you know, being modified watches, like what did you, I guess, what did you do wrong in the first one? Like what did you learn from that first experience that you knew the second time around definitely to fix before you launch a new business? Yeah, I think I think there are a couple obvious ones. Um, the first is not not having a technical person on the team um, for a business where we were, we were trying to do 
um, like near field communication. So think Internet of Things in 2009, um, trying to get it to like for, for you to record when you drank a full bottle of water. Mm. Right. The idea being if you if you drank a if you drank something from a refillable canta- a container like a Nalgene or a canteen, um, you weren't. Uh, buying a bottle of soda or buy, buying even a bottle of water, right? So it was, it was reducing kind of plastic waste. And so we were doing this really, really complex thing. We had no technical talent on our team. So it was a lot, it was a lot of business development with no actual um, kind of proof that we, we could make anything work. So I think that was number one. Um, but I think number two uh, was we did way too much thinking instead of doing. So we had all these huge hypotheses but it, it must have taken us nine months, a year before we tested any of them, like truly, truly tested them, right? Uh, theoretically, they were right, and we would make very good business school professors, and that we were smart and, and thought we had the right answers. But the reality is, um, not until you actually test it, do, do you learn? And so by that point, it, it, it had been too long. We, um, you know, whether we lost momentum or there, there were a lot of things that obviously happened. Um, and so we, we just didn't, didn't make the progress that we wanted. So I think, you know, the first is the, the, the need for great technical help, um, doesn't need to be best in class, but, but it needs to exist, right? Just having strong tech is important. Um, and then, uh, actually moving to, to test and break things first before you assume you're right. We just have way too many assumptions with, with too little proof. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so obviously the first business was an honest attempt. You were actually were trying to start a business, but uh, there were a lot of issues along the way that you encountered that 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 led to its uh, you know ultimate failure. So how did you know when to stop with that business? You know, because I think this is a a key. Even even if a business is successful, or if an entrepreneur is at a stage where they're at a crossroads, thinking should they continue and maybe pivot or just start from scratch and scrap the entire thing. It sounded like you guys just scrapped the entire thing. How did you make that decision? Like, talk to us about that thought process. Yeah. So it had been four of us who started the company and the company is called Refill Revolution, right? And so we started it together and then come maybe six months in, it was two of us who were going full time and a third one who was still interested, but um, you know, had a wife and a kid and needed to make money. Right. And so he didn't, he didn't really have the luxury that we did of just kind of living cheaply and, and figuring things out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we spent uh, basically three, maybe six months intensely doing it, right? During school, I basically didn't take any classes that didn't directly impact this business. Or if I did, I just kind of skipped those classes or, you know, w- was okay not doing great. You know, by, by the time you get to business school, you know, you've already had a job. So your competitive nature in terms of trying to get an A <laughs> disappears. I, or <laughs> at least I, th- I think it should, right? Um, and so w- we hit a point where, we didn't have a clear business model. Um, we had applied for a couple, uh, some grants actually, because it was a sustainability business. We could apply for some grants. Um, we'd applied for um, kind of a sustainability accelerator. Uh, we'd gone out for a little bit of funding, and we just we didn't have any meaningful success. Right? We had, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe a hundred users who were interested in what we were doing. Um, I, maybe a thousand other people said, "Yeah, I would do that if." Right. But, but we didn't have, we didn't have a clear business model. We didn't have a good tech stack. We didn't have, like, we didn't have anything outside of our belief that this should work. Right. And so I think at some point, um, we just hit a wall, frankly, um, of, okay, there, there's opportunity costs, right? Like we, maybe this could work and maybe we could figure it out, but is this the right investment? Um, and I think that's, I think most of the time that that's a, the question for, for the entrepreneur, right? Like the, 
the story is you should, you need to see something come to life. So you, you bust your butt until it comes to life. And like, that's a really sexy story after the fact. But at the end of the day, like at some point you need to be realistic of, okay, like, is this the best path for me to, to make my mark or to make capital if I need to make capital or um, to learn as much as possible? And I think I'd exhausted my learning without having a clear path on how we were ever going to make money. I think that's probably how I would put it. Um, so sat in on the, that class with, with Blank and Eric Rees and realized that we'd just done so much wrong um, and that the idea of kind of jumping back in, I think at that point just wasn't exciting. Uh, if that makes sense. That does make sense. So when you started a second business, did you have the same kind of criteria, I guess, personal criteria? Yeah. And like, how, how long did it take you? Like, how much time did you give yourself to uh, to answer those questions? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, that that's a great question. So uh, probably April of our second year. So this is April 2010. My buddy Gary um, had come back from traveling in Southeast Asia with his family and he bought all these silicone watches, right? Just think like big garish, like rubber watches that are yellow or pink or green or whatever. And he said to me, Hey, uh, my mom loves them. My younger sister loves them and I love them. So three completely distinct demographics. Do you want to try and sell these with me? Like, I don't know anything about starting a company. And I said, sure, I don't know anything either, but I'm in this class. And what they tell me is, you know, figure out all my assumptions and test them immediately. And so we started with the express goal of having it be a summer project and then going to get our real jobs. Um, he ended up getting a real job. And on some level, I envy him a bit. Like they own a nice apartment. And, like, things are mm-hmm. things are great for him in his life. Um, but he stayed involved as an advisor and obviously a close friend. Um, and I just, I never went back to get get my real job. Um, and so, so the path to me kind of, deferring and then saying no to the company I was going to go back to, uh, was like Gary and I sat and this was in April. We had a, an hour long meeting where we basically whiteboarded everything that we knew about selling products. And it wasn't very much, but we listed out 20 people who we knew who, who could help us. So somebody who had been an importer wholesaler, somebody who was a banker who could help us build out our financial model. Um, somebody who worked in marketing at the NBA who actually ended up joining the company a couple of years later. Um, so as a buddy of mine from college, um, right. And we kind of went down the list and said, here are all the things we don't know. And here are our assumptions. And then we proceeded to try and test those assumptions in terms of like the priority order was what would the impact be if it was right or wrong. Right. So, um, the first thing we did was we actually bought watches from eBay and they were five bucks a piece and they were really low quality, right? Like we knew that we were going to sell them to friends and family. No, no stranger was going to stumble across our website at the start. But what we wanted to see was when people bought these watches, um, how did they buy the watches? So Modify was originally called the swap watch. And the idea is that the watches, like the watch face and the watch strap are interchangeable. So uh, you could actually like pull apart the pink strap and put it onto a different style design. Um, And so what we wanted to see was, did people buy individual pieces or did they buy a full watch? And the thing that we were testing for was if people cared, if, if there was value to the modularity, right? If somebody would buy one watch face and two watch straps, so they would change their look on a daily basis, right? Maybe they buy a black strap for a more formal or kind of more conservative look and then a pink or a green strap for a more bold statement look. Um, and so our test wasn't did people like the watches when they get them, when they, when they received them, it was how did they how did they consume that product? Because mm-hmm. our, our, our thought process was if you buy a green strap and a black watch face, you're, you're just buying a watch. But if you buy a green strap and a black watch face and a blue strap as well, 
then you're actually saying like, hey, I'm going to mix and match these, right? Because it's an odd number. And so for our first couple hundred sales, what we saw was, I think it was 1.3 or 1.4 straps per watch face. And so we had validated that people would consume the product that way. Then we had to worry about actually getting a product that worked, right? Mm. So our first products, we would send you one and we'd add an extra battery in the package. And we would add normally a second watch as a, hey, thanks, mom or Jimmy or whoever, you know, what, whoever mm-hmm. bought the product. It didn't matter. And we would have a business card that had our cell phone numbers because we wanted them to, if they had any issue, we didn't want there to be any friction with customer service. Right? It wasn't like help and modify. It was Aaron and, or Swapwatch. It was like Aaron at the swapwatch.com. And so I would deal with all service and everything just to figure out what was right or wrong about our business. Um, th- does that make sense? Sorry, like I, I know it's a little nuanced, but no, uh, it, it it does make sense. Uh, I think the question that comes up though is like, how, what was the uh, the hypothesis? Was it that you wanted to see if people would buy watches that were interchangeable? So the, the hypothesis was that there was room in the market for more customization in the watch space, right? Mm-hmm. So if the idea is, and and kind of the um, like that, that the ability to accessorize with watches was something that people were interested in. Those, that was kind of the, that in, in parallel. Yeah. So um, if you want to get the best watch for 50 bucks, you should go buy a Swatch, right? Swatch is this incredible watch product, right? There's no, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, they, they've been doing it for decades. They're unbelievable, right? But if you buy three Swatch watches, you have three watches. If you bought three of our watches, you really had nine different combinations, right? So mm-hmm. a black, a black and black, a blue, a blue, and a green and green, like you can put each of those straps with each of those watch faces, right? And so we wanted to test to see if people would use it that way, because if we were going to be competing on just watch design and style, like somebody was going to buy a single watch, right? They were going to mix and match, but only buy one watch face and one watch strap. Um, we weren't going to win in building just basic watches. We weren't passionate about watches. So it was like watches. We didn't have like a family history of watchmaking. We, we had no competitive advantage. But if it was about people interchanging and coming back and maybe coming back to the site a month later and buying one more strap or one more watch face, right? So it's a more accessible kind of second purchase, third purchase. We thought we could at least make a mark in terms of building a strong brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so how did you come up with this hypothesis? Because it, it sounds like a uh, an exercise that a lot of, especially new businesses or, or not new uh, businesses that have not started yet, should consider going down. But I wonder if it also makes sense for existing businesses to come up with the hypothesis if they haven't done so already. So how did you come up with yours? That's a good question. So how do we come up with our hypothesis? I'm trying to think back, like right now I'm gray and I have a baby and everything's changed in the last six years. So I've got to go back to, to day one, which is kind of unfair of you. Um, the, the idea was if, if we're going to play in this space, we need to be different, right? And so what are the different ways that we could be different, right? One was custom. So could we make a custom watch where you could get a photo of your kid or a photo of your company, right? Or your logo of your company or whatever on there. And, and to start the business, the answer was no, right? And then we kind of looked at how all of these products were being sold. And so at the time they were called jelly watches. And if you were to Google jelly watches, I'll bet you could still find products like this. Um, or if you, if you travel to Taiwan or basically like a bunch of different Asian countries and you look in markets, you'll see still the style of watch being sold, but except for now they copied our mold, which is pretty cool. That was, um, you know, getting, um, having somebody steal our IP was pretty neat. Like it was, <laughs> it was a weird, it was a weird milestone to celebrate. Um, but what we noticed was everybody who was selling these products, which were interchangeable, were selling them in a monochromatic fashion. So it was pink and pink, blue and blue, green and green. And we, you know, just kind of struck us as we played with it and as we use a product, 
that this is a differentiated way to use it and that it wasn't restricted only to doing it with silicone or rubber watches. And so now we have leather straps and stainless steel watches and nylon straps and soon we're going to launch metal straps as well. Right. So it was more about a consumer behavior hypothesis. Um, you know, I don't I don't think you need to try to be differentiated in terms of like, hey, we're doing something that nobody's ever done in a space to be successful. Right. I think there are a lot of other things that go into making um, a business successful for us. So that was that was a more fun experiment. Like we knew we could probably sell some random watches and do something, but it wasn't we weren't going to learn from that. It was just going to be, hey, put up a website and sell something. Um, we wanted to see if we could actually kind of create a new category, I guess, is a, um, is a different way of thinking about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think this, I want to go back to an earlier thing you said uh, that's related to this is that you mentioned that you and your, your co-founder, you guys, it, it didn't seem like the, I guess, ideal customer for a product like this, because like you're saying, it's a, uh, you know, fashion based and that's not something that you considered yourself, uh, I guess, uh, in that type of industry. So are there, were there difficulties in starting up a business or creating a product when you aren't the ideal customer that, that come to mind? Yeah, so um, so I actually think we are the ideal customer for this type of product. We're not the ideal person to start a fashion brand, is mm-hmm. what I meant. It's mm-hmm. it, how I think about it. So um, I'm not a trendsetter. Um, I still wear like New Balance 993s and just like very gray basics because they're comfortable, right? Um, but we were really good at creating a brand that was accessible to everybody. So the voice that we had at the time, which is still kind of it, was a little bit quirky, a little bit snarky, pretty positive, pretty jokey, right? We'd reference Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade or random stuff that we grew up with. But it was something that, um, you know, our peers could, you know, could understand the, the brand voice. Our parents could understand the brand voice. And his, Gary's kind of younger siblings, my younger cousins could understand it. So we, we tried to make it a brand that was open to everybody. And still, if you go to our website or Instagram or Facebook, you'll see that it's not a pretentious brand, right? Mm-hmm. The idea has always been, you tell your story and use Modify to help you do it. So the reason I think we were actually the right customers is I've never had somebody say, hey, that's cool when they see a T-shirt I'm wearing or some jeans or some shoes or anything. Like nobody has ever stopped me on the street and said, cool luck, man. Like that's awesome. <laughs> but when I would wear our bold green or pink or whatever color Modify watches, people would stop me, right? And we had so many customers write in about that. Like, yeah. People stop me on the street and I tell them all about you and I show them how it's interchangeable, right? And so we've never had a big marketing budget. We've always grown through word of mouth um, and kind of that high-touch service that I talked about, which is the handwritten note in our packages, right? When we started, we, we've kept that through even still today, mm. right? Um, and so the idea of the brand being open to everybody um, was one thing where, hey, you get, to, you get to do whatever you want. Just use this as kind of, use this as your t-shirt template, except for you're wearing it on your wrist, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that, if that answers your question. Yeah, no, it, it does. And, and because you didn't seem like the ideal entrepreneur to start a, a business like this or a business in this industry, what, did you, what do you feel like you had to, 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 I guess, definitely learn or pick up along the way to be successful? That's a good question. I mean, we had a lot of theory, right? So we'd done business school. We'd each been consultants and kind of had friends who were entrepreneurs and came from business-minded families and all this stuff. Um, you know, I think we basically just got to put everything into practice, right? So we learned very quickly how to do Facebook um, in terms of like, not just Facebook in terms of putting stuff out there, but actually getting engagement and learning and testing to figure out, hey, you don't want to do a giveaway too often because people will stop buying your product, but you want to 
you want to do a giveaway once every two weeks to get more Facebook likes and you want to boost posts this way and um, you want to do fan voting as much as possible. So really bring your fans in because they'll tag their friends and it'll show up in everybody's feed, right? So think about that for Facebook and then think about it for every other social channel. We did the same amount of testing with our newsletter. What's the cadence of our, kind of our weekly email that we'd send out to people? Should it be weekly? Should it be biweekly? Should it be three times a week, right? How do we segment that? Um, in terms of our website and the story we told, in terms of the pricing, we basically tested everything. Um, you know, and I think it was that mindset of we don't know what we don't know about selling watches that helped kind of define our business. And so I'll give like a, a tangible example of that. Uh, early on, we had a customer who worked at Google and some... Uh, some rep from like a branding company called Canary Marketing uh, walked by his desk and said, hey, that's a cool watch. Where'd you get it? And he told them the story about Modify. said, yeah, these guys are great, really good service and blah, blah, blah. Right. Like I've got a bunch of them and they're interchangeable. And so I got an email from Canary Marketing, who's been an awesome partner to us over the years. Um, and they said, yeah, why don't you come in? We're looking to buy a gift for our thousand clients. And so Canary Marketing is a type of company that works with Google or Facebook or think of a big brand. And they help them come up with kind of your own you're in swag, right? Like and gifts for employees, maybe even the pens on the on the on the receptionist desk, right? That sort of stuff. So I went into their office and I said, Yeah, this is our product. And it was, and it was this is not an exaggeration. It was it was eight women and one guy and then myself around the table, all of whom were cooler, more fashionable, whatever, and all of whom knew products better than I did, right? It was six months into the business. And they said, tell, tell us about the brand. And I told them a little bit about us and our ideas. And I said, yeah, and our price point for, for the watch is $29. And they said, ooh, hmm, should probably be a little bit higher. And I said, yeah, we're actually thinking to raise it to $39, right? And I made that decision on the spot. And they said, yeah, that sounds about right. And I mean, it was that sort of thing, right? And then they bought 1,000 watches. And then some of their clients bought, including Google. And so we had like a forty or $60,000 quarter. This was six months after starting the business, Right. And what that quarter does, it brought us into this kind of corporate promotional product space, mm -hmm. which has always been half or more of our business. So we've worked with, I don't know, 200 of the Fortune 500 companies. Some have bought 25 watches, some have bought 5,000, right? But we've been able to, we, 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 it wasn't a pivot of the business by any means. It was just, um, here's a great new channel that we can work with. And it was all because we walked in basically with an open mind saying, hey, here's what we're thinking. What do you think? Right. And I think that mindset is kind of carried on through the company. So we've picked up sports licensing because our fans want us to be like NBA licensees. Right. Um, we now do stuff with nonprofits and we do print on demand and we let people sell stuff, like create their own shop on our site, which we actually run through Shopify, of course. Um, and so it's <laughs> like this really kind of complex thing that we say to people, hey, we will be your merchandise shop. You don't have to do a thing. We'll do the design, production, everything. You just bring your audience. Right, and then we share the revenue. Yeah, I, I like that you you said that you when you went into these meetings, especially early on, when you're talking to potential customers, you valued their opinion. You're asking about what they think, and I think you said earlier that the brand is obviously not pretentious at all. I think this is on one end of the, one end of the spectrum, and on the other end of the spectrum, people will say or recommend that you know you establish yourself as an authority, as an expert, and put yourself kind of on a pedestal, and I guess lead from from that point of view yeah. what, are you, what are your thoughts on i guess those two like that, that those two ends of the spectrum like uh, what have you found uh, like why do you think it has worked for you to go down this route rather than the the, the other route that other other folks talk about yeah so i i mean i don't you know i'm always very cautious when i'm like in press or on podcast or when i'm writing or whatever to to give definitive advice um because i think everybody's very different um 
And so I think the main message is that you should be true to yourself, mm-hmm. right? So we raised money a couple of years ago and I had all this advice I need to be the authoritative, whatever, right? And be very definitive. And I went into one meeting like that and it was an awful meeting because it wasn't comfortable for me to say, mm-hmm. this is what we're doing and this is the future and whatever. And then I've gone into other meetings where I've been myself and I say, hey, these are our plans, but you know a ton, talk to me. And that's bit me in the butt. Like we had an opportunity opportunity to raise a lot of money earlier this year. And I got into the final partner meeting and I, I was too nonchalant. And it wasn't mm-hmm. I was nonchalant like, oh, it's in the bag. It was just, hey guys, I want to have a discussion with you. And they didn't want a discussion. And I found this out after the fact. They wanted to be wowed, right? Mm-hmm. They want to say, wow, this guy has a vision and whatever. And so, you know, I, I think it, it kind of depends on what your situation is. Um, my approach is actually pretty much in line with one of the kind of core tenets of uh, UC Berkeley, like the Haas Business School. Um, high school business that I attended, which is confidence without attitude. So I know I know a lot about this space, right? I know a lot about print on demand. I know a lot about watches. I know a lot about influencer marketing, right? Like the like making everybody a micro influencer because they're wearing something cool and they can they can engage their friends and family. But like I know what I know, and if I walk in and just tell you what I know, like I'm not going to learn anything from you, right? And so it, you know, my wife would probably say that I talk more than listen, but I think I'm most successful when I actually shut up, right? <laughs> I learn from whoever I'm speaking with. Um, you know, the, the, the reason I was, I was late to the podcast is I, I had some technical difficulties, but before that I was running late because, uh, like we were talking to a sports agency about working with their athletes and the woman, you know, asked me, why are we the best or whatever? And I kind of like laid out what we were good at, but I also made it clear. I said, listen, like we're only good if we don't take any of your time so that your return on investment is incredibly high. Right. Like we will do everything and we're great at design and we're great at service and we'll be great working with your athletes. Um, and if we're not, you, you can just tell us and we'll, we'll fix it or, or you can walk away. And I think being brutally honest with folks about what you can do and what you can't, but then figuring out what they care most about. Right. She didn't care about the revenue that they were going to generate. She cared about was this going to be a pain in the butt for them mm-hmm. to execute. Right. Um, and I think, um, you know, I know I'm kind of uh, bringing in a couple different examples, but I think trying to posture and be like a hard ass if you're not, or trying to be a softy if you're not, is just a mistake. Like you as the entrepreneur, um, you know, you need, assume, assume most of your relationships are going to be very long lasting, right? Either because you keep working with that partner or because they're a referral for you for future business or future whatever, right, for your company. And so if you change who you are for different people, that's going to be a real issue. <laughs> like it's going to bite you in the butt down the road. Yeah, and I think that when you, what you're saying about how when you were yourself and you were being yourself and being kind of uh, much more open about uh, when you went to this investor meeting, when you were super open and nonchalant about it, it turned out poorly for you. Does that mean that you cannot pursue those opportunities that do require you to, I guess, not change the way you are, but I guess essentially change the way that you represent yourself? Does that mean you can't pursue those opportunities, or like, how do you, I guess, deal with that? That that you want to be yourself, you know. And I heard heard, heard this advice plenty of times from other entrepreneurs that are super successful, just as just like you. Um, but then there's the opportunities that seem to favor people that are maybe different, maybe even opposite of the way that you are. How do you, I guess, justify or balance those two, I guess, uh, opposing uh, issues? Yeah. Listen, next time I try to raise a couple million dollars from somebody, I'm going to do much more research. <laughs> Right. So I talked to one or two people who had met with them and they said, yeah, here's how you do it or whatever. And I should have talked to a dozen or 50. And I think I didn't, I I don't think I put, um, you know, it was a quick turnaround. I found out I was going to have the meeting on a Friday morning and the meeting was Monday afternoon. Right. 
and I prepped, but I prepped internally, right? It was basically going back to the Steve Blank idea of get outside your building. Like I prepped by thinking about my business and why we would be great for them and why they would be great for us or whatever. But I didn't actually talk to people. I talked to one or two folks, right? But I didn't talk to the dozen people who had interacted with, with the senior partner at that firm, right? And so I had no experience and I didn't, uh, I just, I took for granted that if I just talked about us, that we would be great, right? And that, um, so I think what I take from that is next time I go to raise $2 million or $3 million or whatever the check could have been, right? I prep in a different way. And so the way I describe it to my team in general is when they're making decisions, um, you know, if it's a high impact decision, like put the work in, if it's a low impact decision that you can come back from, right? So if, if a customer um, has an issue and they're just, you can't resolve it, you don't know what to do, and you think that the best thing to do is to refund them and send them two extra watches, just do it, right? Like at the end of the day, it's going to cost us a hundred bucks but it's probably not worth your time to keep going back and forth. It's not worth your time to bring it to me or to somebody else and to debate it, like make the $100 decision, right? If it's a $10,000 decision, <laughs> think a little bit harder. If it's a million dollar decision, right, like really prep hard. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I think I treated this meeting like it was any other investor meeting, right? And most investor meetings are, hey, it's great to meet you. Like, let's start a relationship. And in six months, we might be raising or, hey, we've already got a round coming together. Do you want to invest 100K? Right, but this was the lead investor who's going to write a check that was 20 times bigger than anybody else's check, right? And I treated it like it was a normal meeting instead of treating it like it was do or die for my business. Mm. Uh, does that make sense? So it's not that I, I needed to walk in and posture and be somebody else, but I needed to know that I could still be myself and still smile and still make jokes during the presentation, but that they wanted a very black and white roadmap for what we were going to do. And that they know, and I know that that roadmap's not going to work, but they want me to have absolute confidence that given all the information I have, this is how I see the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes make sense. That does. Okay. Cool. So let's talk about this uh, MVP, like kind of lean startup model that you built your business uh, using that. Then I think that that's what contributed to your success uh, when compared to the the first business that you try to start. Um, so maybe we can start off just by talking about the lean startup uh, model. Can you just give us like a brief, uh, I guess, general idea of like what, what does it mean to have to follow the lean startup methodology and how is it different than a typical uh, business that does not follow that? Sure. Uh, I, I'm going to absolutely not do justice to Lean Startup. So I apologize to Eric Rees and, and everybody else who, who's behind it or, or, or preaches it. Um, I'll talk about how I internalize it, right? Um, so, so Eric Rees, R-I-E-S, um, kind of pulled together. Um, I think the first thing I ever read was an interview that he did in 2008 or 2009 on Venture Hacks. And if you look up Minimum Viable Product, um, and Lean Startup uh, and, and Eric Rees, you'll, you'll find an awesome interview that he did. Um, so the way that I internalize it is, or like kind of the bigger tenets that I care about is one, like test all of your assumptions. Like everything that you think is an assumption. So is this the right price point? Is this the right product feature? Do we need any of these features? Do we need five buttons or one button? Um, does this brand resonate? Like literally test as much as possible. Um, and the second one is test with what's called a minimum viable product, so an MVP, okay? Um, so going back to kind of the, the anecdote I said before, our first watches did not work, right? Or like they had a 30% defect rate, but, but for all intents and purposes, they were bad watches, right? But the test that I wanted to see wasn't did people like these watches that work? It was how did people purchase these watches? 
So the minimum viable product, I didn't even get down to minimum, um, uh, was to me, it was selling a broken, like again, not completely broken, but a pretty much broken watch was okay because the only thing I was testing was would people um, buy this product in a certain way? Okay, like would, would they buy them and take advantage of the interchangeable nature of the product or would they treat it like a normal watch? The true minimum viable product would have been if I'd put up um, that website, right? In a, we, we made the website look really good. So we spent three days on it. We could have made it look really bad and spent one day on it, right? Um, and just had a nice logo, but, but no bells and wishes, whistles, no about us section, whatever. So we could have spent a little bit less time on it. Um, and we didn't even need to have the product in hand. What we could have done is let people purchase the product online and then written to them immediately and say, Jimmy, I'm so sorry we sold out of that watch. Because we didn't actually care about getting them the watch. We just cared about their buying decision. So uh, I think that's like kind of the beginning piece of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, viable, the word viable really matters. Um, me walking out on the street with a piece of paper and saying, would you buy this watch? doesn't actually let me know if somebody would buy the watch. Like I needed a website that accepted credit cards, right? Um, so I needed to test that piece. Um, but the minimum piece is I didn't technically even need to have watches, though we took it a little bit further and we had watches that just weren't very good. Um, so I think that's kind of like, um, that's, well, the minimum viable product mm-hmm. is, is a huge piece of it. Um, oh, go ahead. Please. Yeah, I was going to ask. So the idea behind this is so that you can move quickly and then just get out there so that you can start testing your assumptions. Uh, how do you determine, though, I think you're kind of talking about this a little bit, but maybe we want to expand on this a bit more. How do you determine what is considered a minimum viable product? Because, uh, you know, obviously you don't want to do more than you have to. And there, this is probably more of an art than a science. But you don't want to do more than you have to. But you also, is there a danger in not doing or not having enough of a, of a product that, that's maybe below maybe uh below minimum viable but you know obviously you're not aware of it yeah absolutely so um you know listen the the big idea and this is not a one time at the start of your business you're meant to do this throughout your whole life life cycle of a company again i'm not doing this justice right but it's you learn you build something new you measure it and you learn from it right so you build a new page on the website and before you transition the entire website to this new template you drive traffic there you test are people interested? Yes. Does it perform better? Yes. Maybe you roll it out to your entire website. You test the next thing. Does it work better or worse? Right. Um, I, the word viable is really critical. Right. You need to be confident that what you're, you know, it's like any scientific experiment. Right. Um, you actually need to. You, you probably want to have a some sort of control. <laughs> you you want to think through what it is that you're testing. And so for us, you know, I made a joke a minute ago that I could probably have just done the website in, in 12 hours. The reality is I probably needed to spend three days on that website with Gary because we probably, like if we'd had a 12-hour website, people would have thought we were a scam, right? So we needed people to trust that there was a brand and trust that they were going to get watches delivered and that those watches would work. And then that was, that was enough. Now, we didn't actually need to have the watches in hand, right? Um, because we didn't care if they actually got it and what they did with the watch once they got it. Um, so I think in that example, that would, that would be it. Mm-hmm. But I think, uh, it's, it's more, listen, you, you can test your way, like you can test everything, right? At the end of the day, you need to have kind of core tenets of your business and a core kind of a defining vision of your business, right? So for modify, the idea has always been like, you get to wear what you want and we're going to do it with watches, right? And so for us to drop watches and go into video games and let you build an avatar, like doesn't really line up. And we might test that there's more engagement that way, but it, it's not actually core to what our business is, right? Um, it's more about uh, like 
I, you, you just you you still want to you still need to follow your vision. Like you can get very easily distracted as an entrepreneur. And I think kind of the second piece is what's underlying that. And for us, like it was always A plus design and A plus customer service. And so there were certain things that we were willing to change. Right, we were willing to change the price of our product. Right, as I as I mentioned before, from from twenty nine to thirty nine dollars. And you know we've like leveled up our product. We're willing to test discount codes. We're willing to test different social channels. We're willing to test what products like where we sell our products, do we sell to big companies or, or individuals or whatnot? Um, but we're not willing to compromise on really good service and really good design. And that, that kind of runs all the way through, um, kind of the whole history of modify. Mm-hmm. So I think the concern that, uh, entrepreneurs have, and, and this, this idea of minimum viable product has been, uh, super popular over the last uh, few years. I guess that's when it, it's been, uh, it came out really. Um, but I think the concern that a lot of entrepreneurs have is that they don't want to tarnish their reputation by releasing a product too sure. soon. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Like, you know, because I think, I think it is a real concern. I, I do wonder how much maybe it's uh, overblown or what are your thoughts on yeah. this fear? <laughs> I, I think it's a good question. Um, I, uh, I get the concern. I think if you're doing a life sciences business, you shouldn't launch something too early, right? If you're playing with somebody's <laughs> yeah. life, if you're doing a, like a, a glucose monitor, or, you know, measuring allergies or whatnot, like don't, don't play around. Right. Um, yeah. I think for everything else, I would look at it a different way, which is, you know, if you're listening, if you're trying to build a small business, in case you're building a local, like a corner store, right. Which is great. Okay. You can build a cash line business. You can like give a lot of people jobs and, and really enjoy it you absolutely cannot tarnish your brand or your business, right? Like you don't want to launch, you don't want to open your shop with prices all over the place and like the register not working and giving people a bad experience because you need them to come back because you have a finite audience. Mm. If you're launching a tech company um, or you're launching anything that's basically, let me change that. If you're launching something that you intend to scale, right? So I didn't want Modify to only have 500 customers in local in San Francisco or go home to Cleveland where I grew up and like only have people know us there. The idea was for us to be a huge brand. If I frustrate 100 people or 1,000 people or 10,000 people, right, and I give them like a bad, um, like the product doesn't live up to it or whatever, and I then refund them and I apologize and I did everything possible to make it right by them and to take away their pain, like the reality is they weren't going to be negative. Like they weren't going to follow the business and, and, and write me bad Yelp reviews, right. Or whatever. Um, they would, they would go away. Um, that wasn't the goal obviously, but the reality is if we are going to be a big scalable business and millions of people are going to know us, that first batch is one, one thousandth of 1% mm-hmm. of the total people who are going to know the business. And I, I take the trade off of if you, wait for six months or 12 months or 18 months or 24 months to build something perfect before you introduce it to somebody because you're afraid that those first people aren't going to love it or you're going to tarnish the brand. Um, the reality is somebody else has probably already launched <laughs> and learned a lot more. And what you launch is only going to be what you think is right. And the reality is like you need to figure out what your customers want. And so the sooner you get something out, um, the better you can, like, the, the more likely you are to be successful. And so I just, I think it's a trade-off, right? Like I I don't think you do something that um, can injure somebody and I don't think you do something uh, that doesn't line up with kind of what the future of your business is going to be. But if you keep it in your garage for too long, um, you're just going to be doing cycles in your own head instead of actually learning what's relevant and figuring out people will pay for it. Mm. I think this is also another important uh, question that that that, that gets uh, raised here is how do you know if maybe you're spending too much time in your own head, too much time thinking rather than 
going out and talking to the customers. You know, there's certain things like you're saying, especially if they're low impact, that you can just make the decision yourself. But then when it's bigger right. impact, you need to spend more time on it, bring in other people. So do you, is there like a filter or a criteria that you walk through either quantitatively or qualitatively that allows you to quickly identify, okay, I'm spending too much time thinking about this. I need to go out and talk to customers. It's interesting. Um, I think, so for me personally, I know that I'm spending too much time on something if it's on my plate for more than two days. So there are very few projects that require, like at this point in the business, I don't need to build super complex financial models, right? With thousands of assumptions. I'm not, I'm not building 30 page presentations. Maybe, maybe if we're doing a fundraise or something, right? But that's a one-off project. Um, if I don't knock something out immediately, it means I'm thinking too much about it. Mm-hmm. So if it's, it's on my, on my plate for two days, three days, four days, that probably means I'm just stalling and I'm, either afraid to make a decision or, you know, I just, I'm being lazy, right? And I need to bring it to somebody or my team or a customer and say, hey, what do you think? This is how I'm leaning. Does this make sense? And let them help guide me and help me get it done. Um, my advice to anybody who's starting a company is to find an individual or a small group of people who are at your same stage of business and talk to them and talk to them frequently. So one of my best friends is a guy named Bavin, who's a CEO of a company called Magoosh. Um, and they do uh, test prep. So GMAT, GRE, and like the company's killing it. They are Inc. 500. They were just, I think, number 186. It was just announced. So super fast-growing ed tech company and couldn't be a different business, right? Like Magoosh is doing GMAT, GRE, test prep, and we are selling watches, right? Fundamentally different. But he uh, and, his, and his co-founder started the business about a year before me. And uh, so I've always thought about them as a year ahead of us. And he and I talk almost every day. Um, you know, now that we both have kids, it's a little less frequently, but three, four times a week, right? And my walk to work this morning, he, he gave me a ring. Um, and the value of having this guy who I talk to is that I don't have to go in very far into the issue that I'm having because he has complete context. So I can mm-hmm. say, oh, you know, you know, Mike on our team was thinking about doing X, Y, and Z. What do you think? And he knows who Mike is and he knows our business and he knows my revenue and he knows our channels and he knows our strategy. And so this is a guy who is incredibly smart and capable, and I'd be lucky for him to be on our team, right, who I can just go to and say, hey, what do you think? And his concern is for the business and for me, right? So he won't let me make a decision that would screw me up, and he won't let me make a decision that would screw up the business. And I know a couple other folks who have groups of three, four, five, you know, peer founders. And I think having that peer individual or peer group is incredibly valuable um, just because, uh, you need to get outside of your own, like kind of the own four walls of your business. Um, and you can't bring everything to your board. You can't call your investors all the time. And your husband or wife or girlfriend or dog or whatever don't care. <laughs> like you, you need somebody who, who's in it who cares. Um, and so I think that's uh, like anytime you feel like maybe it's time to bring it outside, like that would be the first person I would turn to. I think that's something that both sides get value from. Like I know nothing about ed tech and I know nothing about test prep. But I can talk to him about all the people stuff. I can talk to him about all the fundraising stuff. I can talk to him about all the sales stuff right? that goes on with his business. Um, and I can talk to him about just the psychological piece of, man, we had a really bad month, right? Though for them, it's normally like, we had an awesome month. How do we make it more awesome? Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, I think, I think that's, um, I don't know, that's more of a tactic to, 
to, to kind of get outside yeah, of it. No, I think I think it's uh, it's a great piece of advice. Um, th- these mastermind groups. It sounds like what's your what you're getting at. Maybe it's uh, formalized, like you know, quote unquote mastermind group, or just a peer a mentor or somebody that's like you're saying the same stage as you. Because the whole journey of entrepreneurship is lonely. Not just you know, it's lonely because you don't see many people, but it's lonely in that there's not many people that are on that same journey or are at that particular stage. Yeah. That when you do find these people, they're invaluable to bounce ideas off and i think like you're saying it's mutually beneficial for both parties i also just if i can just add one more thing to that Mm -hmm. i think um it's not just that it's lonely right the psychological health is is great but the reality is everything that i do right now is focused on modify watches so if i think about sports i think about how do i put how do i get athletes on our watches right if i think about nonprofit work or if i think about the gamification of x y and z or i think about internet of things or everything is about watches and for him Nothing is about watches, which means that we're able to have a discussion and he's bringing in topics or ideas um, or angles on the business that I just don't have, right? Because I am so narrowly focused. Mm -hmm. And if the roles were reversed, it would be the exact opposite, right? Like if I was in ed tech and he was in watches, it it would be the same thing. And so it's about finding capable people who can actually give you strategic insights that you're just, you're not thinking outside of your own business. You're, You're just stuck in it, I think. Yeah, that, that I think that makes sense. It's the the issue where you're just one inch away from your business, you can't see it whole yep. in its whole entirety unless you have someone else from a different perspective, kind of giving you advice on that. Uh, so once you've gotten past this stage of, uh, or once you've uh, done this and spoken to people internally, and you want to start actually testing some assumptions that that you're coming up with, uh, what's the what's your process today? Like, how do you even begin to test an assumption? I guess it obviously varies from the, what you're what you're actually trying to test, but in general, what kind of uh, key steps do you try to include when you are trying to test an, an assumption? Yeah, so I think I think you do. I mean, it depends on again what the grade of the assumption is, right? Is it is it a company changing mm-hmm. decision, um, or is it a hey we we don't know if a discount code like if we should do twenty percent off or thirty percent off, right? So if it's something small like that, um, we have our own internal process where we um, you know we use Optimizely, we A/B test the site, and we see what 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 happens if we do a twenty percent discount code on the page versus a thirty percent. What's the uplift in sales? What um, you know. If you think about contribution margins, so how much cash actually comes in the business, which one has a bigger impact that way, right? So that's a small decision where we might have a process um, where we do it on our Shopify site. And like, you know, we, we might test two different pages, for example, just for, for the most basic. Um, if it is a big strategic decision, like I have a big assumption that our, our audience really wants us to get into music licensing, right? So we have the NBA and Major League Baseball, do people want us to get like Foo Fighters watches, right? Or Wu-Tang watches, or should we go after Bruno Mars or whatever? That's the type of thing where we can kind of float an idea to our audience, right? Um, where we can either do a survey, which surveys are notoriously not great, but um, because you know it's a self-selecting audience who might do it. Um, or we can do some social posts where we say, hey, like who should be the one next artist that we partner with or, or something like that, right? And, and try and suss out what would be interesting to our audience. Um, we also have uh, kind of a network of advisors who I've cultivated over the years. So this could be anybody from like uh, uh, like a legit VC who's never going to invest in our business but knows me personally and is happy to help once a quarter, right, who I can send this out to. And so we've got anybody from that through a private equity person, through somebody who, you know, is in the music industry through X, Y, and Z, and we do that. Um, and so we, we kind of bring it out to people who either if they were investors, like they can put on that investor hat, Right and say, would I would I be excited by you taking this strategic 
shift. But at the end of the day, with, with a brand like ours, um, we have a very active audience as a very forgiving audience, right? Um, so we're able to present something. And if they're not interested, they don't say, God, I hate you guys. I'm never coming back here. They say, no, it's not for us. Right. And so we've kind of built that into the business from day one. So we do quarterly surveys. We post a lot of questions on social. At the beginning of the business, we'd have our fans actually name every permutation of watch. So like the the green and white was called Wimbledon. Right. I mean, something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and we would have our fans vote on stuff like that and what, what products to launch. Um, so I think we've been fortunate in that we have a consumer brand, right? So it's harder if you're an enterprise brand and you have 10 customers and those guys might make your business, mm. right? Um, to, to, to test those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, like, I think if you're really, um, if, if you're just, uh, if you're honest with your, your clients or your customers, you say, Hey, I don't know, but we're thinking about doing this. What do you think? People will give you an honest answer. Right. Um, so I think for the, for the bigger things, it's actually just being aware that you don't know and, and being open about it. I've, I've always found that to be successful, like even for company changing decisions, right? Should we write a $50,000 check to go pick up a license, which was more money than we had at the time, right? Um, should we uh, launch a, a smartwatches or should we stay analog? And for right now, at least we're saying analog. And so I've been able to bring that out to basically our entire fan base and, and kind of ask very openly what they think. Mm-hmm. So for a store, uh, for a listener out there for, that has a store that hasn't done any testing, they haven't tested any part of their, let's say, their website or their products, are there some generic or general tests that you think every e-commerce store should consider testing? That's a great question. Yeah, so I think, I think the basic things to test. So again, right, like if there are fundamental things about your business that, that you, you, you want to be a luxury brand, don't play around with pricing, right? If you want to be a luxury brand, don't sell stuff for 30 bucks. You sell stuff for 300 bucks or whatever, right? So kind of going more generic. The easy things to test are, um, one is price point, right? So testing, um, you know, it's very hard to raise a price once you've lowered it. So you can test with, with discount codes and say, hey, if I do something for 10% off to sign up mm-hmm. to my newsletter or whatnot, does that happen? Um, the second thing is actually with a newsletter or with social is get people to sign up and then you can that's a very easy way. We use MailChimp. There are a ton of great tools out there to send different newsletters. Um, you know, uh, group A gets one newsletter, group B gets another. And so, hey, we're testing new messaging. You can send messaging A to, to like the first set of messaging to group A and see what's their click-through rate to the website. And not just their click-through rate, but what's their conversion rate, right? Because if you only look at click-through rate, um, but you don't actually see if they make any sales, you might get one thing that gets a lot of clicks and the other one actually makes more money mm. from it, right? So so the classic example would be if you said like, biggest sale ever, and then like basically it's a bait and switch and then on the site there's nothing about a sale, you might get a huge click-through rate from the newsletter, but no revenue. And the other one says like, hey, 10% off today, you might get a smaller click-through rate because it's less exciting, but people who click it are interested in taking 10% off that day, right? If that makes sense. Mm. Um, so... Uh, Use, you can use your newsletter to test messaging very easily. If you're thinking about bringing it, making it more of a formal lifestyle brand, you can have, like, do a quick photo shoot with somebody who, you know, dresses up as if it was a model shoot and see if people engage with that more or if they just engage with really high quality product shots. Or you can do a third one, which is like quirky product shots, right? So you can play around with your brand and see what resonates. You test button sizes and button colors, which sounds so silly, but getting people to click checkout. Um, we make it big and orange, 
and we've tested big and blue and small and green and all this stuff. And we see that big and orange is the right thing. So it, it draws your eye and it makes you think about checking out, um, at least kind of on a high level. Um, the thing that we've started to invest more time into is figuring out the number of clicks it takes to purchase. And so our initial assumption was fewer clicks would make um, like a higher conversion rate on our site. But what we're finding now is that we have such a breadth of products. Like at this point, I think we've got five or 10,000 watch designs on our site that it's not about fewer clicks, but it's about kind of guiding people to the products that they want. So it's okay if somebody clicks 10 different pages if they're narrowing down, right? So if on the homepage it says, design your own or browse, and you click browse, and then you can go into bestsellers or sports or whatever, and then let's say you go into sports. Do you want to then go into NBA or NHL or MLB? MLB, okay. Cleveland Indians, okay, which player, right? And so um, that's how we've learned our customers perform. But I think you can think about your website in that way as well, which is like, uh, what is the ideal path that you want your customers to take? And then you can test that pretty quickly. Mm, makes sense. So one other thing that you mentioned earlier that I think you also mentioned in the pre-interview notes is that uh, one of the keys to success is A-plus customer service. And you guys handwrite notes. Is this for every single order that goes out? Yeah, it is. Um, my, my approach, uh, and this goes kind of to the idea of we, <laughs> we didn't know anything about watches when we started a watch company, is we still don't really know anything, right? And so we want, um, as a small brand, we need to hear from our fans and we need our fans to advocate for us. So by writing a small note with a note card or with a business card that says, here's our address or email address, write in if you have any issues, right? It used to be a cell phone, but now we're just, we're much faster with email. So we realized it was better to get rid of the phone number because we would give better service if we Mm -hmm. only got emails. Um, So by saying, hey, thank you so much for your order. We really appreciate it. Any issues or any advice or anything at all, like reach out to us here. one is if somebody has an issue, they immediately reach out, right? Because it was it's a personal relationship on some level, right? It's not, nobody else signs my name. Everybody signs their own name, whoever writes a card, even if it's an intern who's in for two days a week. Right? It's like, hey, thank you so much for your order, Bobby, right? Um, and so if there's an issue, people tell us immediately. And similarly, if, if we did something really well, and like there's no friction for somebody to be like, oh, I'll send them a quick note or I'll take a photo and, and email to them of, of me and my cool new watch or I put the watch on the dog or whatever, Right. So, so I've always thought that was important, was what we didn't want was apathy, right? We didn't want people who had a bad experience to either be really negative or not to say anything, right? Like I just had a terrible experience with our water service company where we needed to cancel and I had to wait on hold for over an hour a couple of times. And like we needed to cancel because we were moving office spaces, but there is no way I'm going to go back to that water company, as silly as it sounds, because they didn't like, they didn't make it easy for me to take care of the, the inner, like the, the transaction that I needed. And so we, we've always wanted to take away friction on the server side. The flip of that is uh, we don't have a big marketing budget, so we grow through word of mouth. And so by giving that little extra, like literally 10 seconds of handwriting, people feel better connection. And then if we screw up, they'll write in and then we can make it up to them and we can wow them. Or if we did a great job, like they still feel a little bit warmer to us versus getting something from a big box store, right? Or getting mm-hmm. something in, in a generic box. And so by having that better experience, we hope that they'll advocate for us to their friends when they're on the street. You know, hopefully when somebody stops and says, cool watch, they'll say, the brand is awesome. They really took care of me, dot, 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 right? And so that's, we've always grown through word of mouth. Um, I think for us, it's just kind of, it's part of my ethos and any company I start is going to have that ethos. I don't think that that part is necessary, 
I think when you start the business, it's absolutely critical to have great service. Like you need to hear from your customers because you need to figure out what's good and what's bad. So the idea behind this, or at least one of the key benefits from doing these handwritten notes is just to open up that channel of communication to get them to feel comfortable reaching out to you guys. That's it, man. It's to say, we are here. If you need anything, if you need a special order, if we screwed something up and like, you know, I keep saying if we screwed something up, we mess up one in, I don't know, 200 orders, right? It's like, oh, we sent a blue strap instead of the navy blue or whatever. But, you know, we want to hear it immediately because, hey, you gave us 50 bucks out of your pocket or 30 bucks or 500 bucks. Like, you, you deserve, like, you deserve to feel like you got two times as much value out of it, right? And so um, it's basically just to say, like, we are here, talk to us. If there's anything we can do, let us know. And the reality is, 95% of people don't ever write anything, mm-hmm. right? And that's okay. Um, but we want to make sure that those 5%, because we don't know who they are, like have that opportunity. Right. Makes sense. So can you give us an idea of how successful the business is today? Yeah, sure. We've got a little over 10 people. We, um, our throughput is maybe five or 600 watches a week. We're, we're growing that, which is pretty cool because they're all handmade in San Francisco. So it's pretty neat to kind of see different designs pop out. Um, we're going to do a little over a million in revenue this year. Um, we've got a bunch of different channels. So our consumer brand is really good at modifierwatches.com. We do a ton of corporate gifting, um, kind of like the, the, the 10 to 5,000 unit orders. Um, and we do a ton of custom stuff now, which is frankly very exciting for me. Um, so the like send us a photo, put it on a watch, that sort of thing is a really cool gift to, to give to a loved one. Um, I think the only other cool part of our business is we've got uh, sports licensing for NBA, Major League Baseball, NHL, which um, you know all, always helps come holiday time. I think the uh, corporate promotional product space is definitely something that's going to be interesting to a lot of listeners being able to break into that space because, like you're saying, it's just another sales channel, but it could be a, a big boon to cash flows for a lot of businesses by getting these clients or these customers on, especially early on. Uh, what do you think um, has been successful for you guys? Like, how were you able to? I, it sounded like you had some personal connections in there, but like, what do you think it was about your business or about your product that made it friendly or made it appealing to? as a promotional product for uh, for a business? Yeah, so I think I think the first thing is our original product was very bright and bold. So if you're Google and you wanted a green, red, yellow, and blue product, right, like we could we could get that to you and it would be really bold and it would bring your brand to life. Um, I think our, our sustained success in the promotional product space is, one, we do a lot of design work and we do it all for free. So if Twitter comes in and says, hey, we want to see this design, you know, a lot of companies will say, all right, it's 150 bucks for a first design. And our answer is it's free mm-hmm. and we'll do five designs because we need to nail a product that you love, right? And the reality is in the promotional product space for anybody who's worked at a, at a big company or has gone to like business school or undergrad even and gotten recruited, like you get a lot of like crappy stuff. <laughs> you get something, you get it and you yeah. put it in it. Or, and our approach is always like, hey, this is an opportunity for us to like help that brand like actually either it's their their customers or their investors or their employees actually wear something on a daily basis that they're really proud of. And if they wear it, one, it's good for Modify because like, you know, somebody else will see it and they'll tell a story. But, you know, more importantly is it's great for that brand because it's not going in a drawer. And so, you know, they might come back and, and, and want to do more. Um, so I think free design is absolutely critical on that. Um, that kind of goes back to that service piece, but let's get them something that they absolutely love. 
Um, and the second is we have awesome partners, right? So I mentioned Canary Marketing. Um, we work with a company called Brand Via. We work with BDA. Like we've got all these different distribution partners because while I've had maybe a half a dozen like people who, you know, when we started the company, I was like, hey, I know these people. Let, let's go and sell them watches. Like we are really good at watches, at design, at service. Those companies are awesome at the sales aspect. So we end up like if somebody comes into us, we introduce them to one of our sales partners, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, because those guys, you know, I can go get a sale for, you know, $2,000 to XYZ company. But if those guys can get us that sale, and we do a great job and we help them look like heroes to their client. They can get us that $2,000 sale five more times at that one company and to any of their other, you know, thousand companies that they wrap. Right. And so just from a scale perspective, um, we, we try not like, we, we just try to build our, our, our better distribution relationships. Makes sense. So thanks so much, Aaron. So what, what do you have planned for the uh, remainder of this, or I guess for the, I guess for the next year, like what, what can listeners look out for from you guys at Modify Watches? Yeah. It's funny to think about 2017 because right now yeah. all we're thinking about is 2016 holiday. Yep. Um, we, we will be launching at least one new industrial design. So kind of new watch style. Um, we are hitting the custom product side really hard. Um, we, um, you know, we built our own custom app on Shopify. Uh, if you go like modifywatches.com slash custom, we built that all on there, uh, which is awesome. And so it's a very easy way for you to add like your photo and we're going to, we're going to make it a little more robust, right? Right now it's very simple and clean. Um, you can upload an Instagram photo, for example, right? And add, add our markers and go, but we'll, we'll be adding some more bells and whistles to that. Um, and then, yeah, we intend to launch a couple more styles next year. But at the end of the day, we, we've gone very, very broad over the years, and now we're bringing it back narrow. And we just want to be kind of the destination where you can get that custom watch that you love. And so that's, um, I think you'll see us start trending more and more and more that way. Yeah, this uh, app I'm looking at now at modifywatches.com slash custom is pretty awesome. Yeah, it looks like you guys put a lot of effort into uh, developing this. Looks looks like a great product. Thanks, man. That was all our CTO. I had nothing to do with it. So <laughs> congrats to Steve. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Thanks again so much, Aaron. So modifywatches.com, again, is the site. Anywhere else you recommend a listeners check out if they want to follow along with what you guys are up to? Yeah, I think our most fun social channel is Instagram. So instagram.com slash modifywatches. Um, we, we do a lot of stuff elsewhere too, but kind of our, our, our best and our boldest goes there. Awesome. Thanks so much, Aaron. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.